This is episode 27 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, April 24th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And it's the continuing stories of the Fosdom speakers. <laughs> but first, we have to, as Martin Short says in that wedding movie, talk about the cake first. I have no idea we what have you're to talk talking about. The cake. about. So here's why we have to talk about the cake. Um, this is sort of, I'm trying to be nice to our, our listeners who hang out in the IRC channel. We have an IRC channel. Most people don't know this. You don't come to it because you... <laughs> I was like, do I know that we have an IRC channel? Yeah, you do, channel? but we, you, I you, do don't, know. you don't come to it. That's okay. okay. It's Nobody's mad at you that you don't come. I, I really hang out on channels Dan for my and lawyer Fab days. rarely come to Linux Outlaws channel. Oh, so really? you're, you're in their tradition. Um, I'm just inspired by their leadership. Indeed. But I auto-joined that channel. And so there was discussion the other day, um, and people were trying to get my opinion. I was busy, and I was like, um, I don't have time to give my opinion and read the backlog or something like that. Um, so when it's, can somebody restate briefly what they want my opinion on? And um, X1101 said, I want your opinion on cake. And so As I, in that cake is a lie? Or cake the band? No, cake the food. Um, but... So he, so I said, well, I like this cake that my grandmother used to make and paste it in the recipe. Oh. And then, because What kind I, of cake was it? It's a hot milk cake, but, um. A hot milk cake? Yeah, it's hot milk cake. So it's, um, this cake you make and you, you heat the milk, but you don't mel- heat the milk too much, uh, which actually Fontano opined that it should actually be a, a not too hot milk cake because the recipe actually says make sure the milk is not too hot. My, my grandmother's way of writing it down, make sure the milk is not too hot, huh. whichever that means. It probably means so that it's not scalded. Well, it's, it, basically it means, the, it's true that if you make this hot milk cake and you can tell how hot they made the milk by how moist it is, because if you make it too hot, it's not moist. But anyway, so we're talking about this. And then Fontana starts talking about how, whether I had permission to release it under, well, I actually even admitted myself that I didn't get permission from all her heirs to release it under CC by SA. Um, but my mother was in possession of the recipe book that she wrote it in. And then we get in this big, long discussion about when it was written into the recipe book. I was just about book. to ask. Right. And that's when Fontana comes in and says, well, the thing is, is I had a copyright in 1965. And he said, well, did your grandmother put a copyright notice on it? Which she did not. That's right. And so it was a copyright. Oh, right. Which is relevant to this talk that we are introducing. That's right. And so, so then... X1101 pointed out, he said, he said, this is why I like this channel and this podcast because the discussion about cake is now about legal issues. <laughs> so, anyway, so now I did argue that my arrangement of the recipe into HTML on the website, which it was not in fixed in that particular tangible medium by my grandmother, but we copied it out of a book, was in fact had a very thin copyright and I do license that copyright CC by SA. So CC by SA is okay to put on there. Because Fontana argued I had to put a waiver and a CC0 because I didn't have a right to claim extra copyrights. Although his argument that I have to remove my grandmother's copyright notice is probably correct because my grandmother did not put a copyright notice on the original 1965 version. But I think you should still attribute it to her even though you don't. Well, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Right. um, But anyway, so, and I have to ask my uncles about the CC by SA thing because they're harassed. But no, we figured out she doesn't have copyright. So no, she was no copyright claim. They didn't inherit any copyright. Unless, unless. You were copying out of a book that was just a sketch, and she actually did publish no, it with just, a notice elsewhere. No, she did not. It was published, but it was given a wet round. In fact, this is the difference between my two grandmothers, because this grandmother shared it freely, 
her information uh-huh. and the other one would get upset. This is my, my, my mom, grandmother on the other side would get upset if family recipes were shared with other people. Oh. So you can tell which grandmother I take more after. I actually Because I believe in sharing information, not hiding it up yeah. in families, powerful <laughs> families who control the recipes of the future, which is what apparently one of my grandmothers believe. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because I actually raise this topic quite often with uh, with my family and explaining about free software and why, um, why it's better to share in free culture. Um, because one of my grandmothers never shared her recipes even with family because she wanted hers to have always been the best. And now we don't know how to make any of the things that we love. And I actually never... Um, got a chance to know that grandmother. I've heard about how great her apple pie was, but I'll never be able to have it. So it ends there, right? If I had the recipe, I would be able to, <laughs> to make the pie and say to everybody that it was my grandmother, grandmother's recipe and attribute it to her. But not only would she not share her recipes, but if people were watching her, were, were in the kitchen with her while she was cooking, she would sneak ingredients in. When they turn their yeah, back. Yeah, told me that before. So, as and Fontana also opined that most restaurants are open core. There's a lot of open core in the huh. food world because you know, occasionally you'll get a restaurant that will tell you one recipe but not like their entire menu. Hmm. You know, and you could it's open core. But I don't know I, that there's a that's a direct. He was being Fontana. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think that it's, I think the recipe example is usually bad. Anyway, it is a bad example. Because, because most recipes are proprietary, as it turns out. Yeah. Uh, and most people don't share the recipes, which is unfortunate. Well, and it also goes more towards trade secret land than True enough. anything else. Although so. software has trade secrets as well. So, But what we're having in this show, oh, do you want to say something about trade secrets? No, so. no, no. It's a, they don't. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, software has trade secrets. They often aren't an issue in freedom open source software. Right, but but, but they are they for proprietary, are for proprietary software. Right. Yes. So what this talk is about is more of a historical overview of some of the various things. Well, it's interesting. I think that this talk was potentially slightly a casualty of our format in that, um, again, the talks weren't very long. So I think the topic is more um, ambitious than the time allowed it to be. Um, so there are recommendations and prescriptions in the talk, but they're not really drilled down to specifics. So, um, and I think the title of this talk is a good example of why not to use the term free Libra and open source software. Okay. Well, let's listen to the talk. We'll talk about that. Slides, <laughs> okay. are, slides are online. They're mentioned at the beginning of the talk. And if you want to go to I actually, last time we said, I said that I listened to the, the talk and I was fine without the slides. This time I felt... Um, I also listened to it without the slides, but I felt like I was missing something the whole time. So, um, okay. you, you might want to do that. They're on, they're anyway, on the show notes. Um, enjoy the talk. All right. So I've got a fair bit of text in these slides. Don't feel like you have to read it all now. I created this presentation partly for a permanent record in the sense that I know there will be more people reading the slides afterwards than sitting in this room right now. Um, but I'll pull out a few key bits. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In the first stage of life, the mind is frivolous and easily distracted. It misses progress by failing in consecutiveness and persistence. I'll skip along a bit. In the second stage, men are docile to events, plastic to new habits and suggestions, yet able to graft them on original instincts, which they thus bring to fuller satisfaction. The last stage 
Last comes a stage when retentiveness is exhausted and all that happens is at once forgotten, a vain because unpractical repetition of the past takes the place of plasticity and fertile readaptation. Immortality must have been secured earlier by giving birth to a generation plastic to the contemporary world and able to retain its lessons. So I'm going to walk a little bit through the history of free software uh, because I have seen evidence in recent years that we're beginning to lose sight of where we started and what that means. So back to the very beginning. A little bit of a scene setting. In 1973 was the Paris Peace Accords. Um, this was a huge victory for free culture uh, as a result of massive protests across the United States and around the world against the Vietnam War. Um, two years later, the Vietnam War was ended. There's this guy, Richard Stallman, uh, working together with a few others, and creates this project called Emacs. Um, it was actually a combination of some pre-existing code, uh, but they released it as a uh, the result of this combination of work. Around the same time, uh, BSD was first released. So this is really sort of the very beginning of free software. Moving on to the 80s. Uh, things are still pretty rough and ready, so I'm, I'm focusing on one particular case because it kind of is the birth of everything. Um, Emacs was rewritten uh, in C by James Gosling, and there's a few other things happening around here. The GNU project is launched, the X project is launched. So 1985, uh, Richard Stallman takes some of James Gosling's code and he puts it into GNU Emacs um, and releases it. Very shortly thereafter, um, a company called Unipress claims rights, copyrights, over that code and tells Richard Stallman that they want him to stop distributing it. Uh, Stallman's response is to remove the code entirely from GNU Emacs. There's never a case on the subject. However, four months after Stallman removed that code, the Free Software Foundation was formed. So if you look at it, this is, this, is a, this is a very key moment in Richard Stallman's thinking. So what was he thinking? So Richard Stallman says that he had received permission to distribute that code from a friend who received it in an email from Gosling because he contributed to the project. Like, totally, like, Okay, from, from us looking at it today as, as lawyers and experienced free software people, seeing that as sufficient permission to distribute code is frightening. Uh, but he says something that's very important. Um, he talks about how Gosling stabbed everyone in the back by putting copyrights on it. Now that's also a little bit bizarre from our perspective now, but something you have to know, the U.S. didn't actually adopt the Berne Convention until 1989. So in 1984, you actually had no copyright in your work unless you explicitly added a copyright statement. If you didn't put the, yeah, if you didn't actually put the copyrights on there. 
So in this time, actually, Stallman was totally right. He, he, there was not a restriction against him distributing code. Um, what Gosling did is later put the copyright statements in his code, and then he sold it to Unipress, and Unipress was chasing him down. So it's a, it's a fuzzy case, but what it did is it gave Stallman the idea of, ah, okay, so just relying on, say, uh, you know, the, an email that someone has given me isn't quite enough. We need to straighten things out a little bit. We need to think about the law behind the code. few more pieces of history. Uh, then the MIT license came out in 86 um, for the Xcode base. Perl was originally released as non-commercial, for non-commercial use, no specific license. Um, the BASD license came out 10 years after BSD itself was released. Um, and this was the one with the advertising clause. Then we start to see uh, the further formulation of GNU and licensing, and you see the Bison General Public License, the EMAC General Public License, the NetHack General Public License. So they're all basically the same thing, but at the time there wasn't the idea that we needed a general purpose license. It was just, oh, we need to have a license for each project. And finally, in 1989, uh, we see the release of a general purpose GPL license, the 1.0 release which was quickly adopted by Perl. And in 1989 also is when the U.S. finally officially uh, adopted the Berne Convention. And the significance of the Berne Convention is that it gives you copyright. It, it's the act of creating the work that gives you the copyright rights. Um, you don't have to take any special steps after that. It's, it's granted you, to you by default as soon as you create it. So around the time the general purpose GPL license was released, um, you see some interesting, so it's like the whole idea of copyleft was beginning to form. And you'll see phrases like, uh, the actual document consists of several pages of rather complicated legal bull that our lawyer said we needed. Um, so there's not really the, 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 like the full, fully developed idea of free software law. It's just in the very, very early stages. This is the late 80s. We see the further development. Um, so what, the, what I would compare this to is the 70s and 80s were like that very initial stage of just completely free thinking. There's ideas beginning to form, but they haven't really cohered. Um, the 90s is very much the plastic phase. This is when free software um, started to take off. This is when people were coming up with new ideas, uh, when free software was developing very, very rapidly. So early 90s, uh, the artistic license came out. This was a dual license with GPL. Uh, the Linux kernel was first launched, first non-commercial. It's interesting, that was a popular idea then, non-commercial, and then GPL. The Debian project was launched in 93, moving along. The Apache group, no foundation, just the Apache group, a bunch of developers, is 95. And the Apache license was later in 95. So through the, through the early 90s, you see some of these big projects that we're, we're now familiar with. We're really just getting started. Uh, 
KDE is 96, and 97 is uh, when Eric Raymond wrote The Cathedral and the Bazaar, which was kind of, I'd say it was kind of a new perspective on what free software was about. Um, so four years after the Debian project was launched, then the software in the public interest, the foundation that, that sort of supports or works with the Debian project was formed. Uh, KDE was formed, formed a foundation about a year after the project was launched. And just for a little bit of context, what was happening now in the tech, wider technology world uh, was the, the big lawsuit uh, by Sun to Microsoft for creating their own implementation of Java. The GNOME project started late in the 90s. No foundation. 98. So this is when Netscape Communicator was, was released as free software under the Netscape public license. This was a big aha moment for a lot of people. This was really the first big release of a large body of code, of proprietary code into the free software world. And it made people start thinking, ah, oh, wait a minute. Okay, we've got a new audience here. Um, this isn't just for our own needs. This is actually relevant to corporations. And a bunch of people got together and started thinking about, okay, how do we help these businesses understand where we're coming from, what this means? Um, and Christine Peterson, together with a group of people, but Christine Peterson is the one who create, came up with the word open source. So just another way of explaining the same basic concepts. Within a few months, the open source initiative was launched. Um, soon after that, the Apache Foundation was formed. This is four years after the Apache project had already been running. Um, and also late 90s is when SPI got their 501c3 status. Next decade, uh, Apache License 1.1, just another revision of the same license. Um, the Pearl Foundation was actually formed as an organization called Yet Another Society. They're still technically named Yet Another Society. Um, and this was purely a matter of convenience. They were running conferences, they needed to receive funding for the conferences, it was easier to receive funding if they had some kind of legal entity to receive it for them. Uh, the Gnome Foundation was formed in 2000, also years after the project itself. Um, the Python Software Foundation was 2001. In 2002, there's another little bit of history that was a bit of a lesson for a lot of projects, not just for Perl. Um, a, an employer of one of the Perl core developers uh, informed the developer that they did not have the right to contribute code, that they had been developing all this code under an employment contract, and therefore it was not theirs to donate. Um, they weren't willing. They weren't willing to uh, agree to have the, the code distributed, so it ended up being ripped out of the Perl core. Um, there's a lot of people commenting on that thread. Even Richard Stallman commenting on that thread. It was a bit of a. It was a bit of a realization for people uh, to think about where the code is coming from and and what it means to distribute it. Open source initiative. Uh, 2003. Mozilla Foundation was also 2003. So you're going to get the impression that the 2000s were a decade of... Well, what was really going on is as P3 
people tried to approach corporations, they started realizing they needed a face to deal with these corporations. They needed um, a legal entity uh, to take care of certain bits and pieces. And so you see like foundation after foundation after foundation popping up in the 2000s. Um, like many more than I will even list here. 2003 uh, was the SCO versus IBM case. SCO filed a lawsuit against IBM claiming, claiming ownership of the copyright and um, also sent a lot of nasty letters to a lot of Linux users uh, telling them, uh, you, know, no, you know, you better watch out, this is a legal liability, you shouldn't be using Linux. So here's another interesting thing. Um, a year later is when the Apache 2.0 license was formed. IBM was actually a, a key contributor in the Apache 2.0 license. Uh, some of the things that it introduced was a very clear patent licensing language. Um, this was also when uh, Apache launched, uh, adopted a CLA, a contributor license agreement, partly, partly under the encouragement of IBM. This is also when the Linux kernel adopted the certificate of origin, which is not a contributor agreement. It's not something you sign, uh, but it's a, a document that makes clear what terms uh, you are contributing to the project under and gives you a chance to think about, do I really have the right to contribute this? What am I doing here? In 2004, a company which I will not name because I'm re being recorded, but if you have a first guess on who it is, it's probably right, uh, approached me about doing a complete rewrite of Perl from scratch, not necessarily under the artistic license. Um, and I indicated to them, to them that perhaps this was not a good idea and perhaps not desirable. Um, and I don't, I don't have any trouble talking about this now because it never happened and it will clearly never happen now. But uh, within a few months, uh, we started having some conversations about updating the artistic license. Uh, this is when we filed for the Pearl trademark, uh, just in case we would need it. Uh, we've never needed it, which is fantastic. Uh, this is also when Pearl adopted a contributor license agreement, um, sort of clarifying uh, the terms under <coughs> under which people were contributing. Um, you know, I, the idea of a contributor license agreement started back in 2002 with that, with that case where the, the guy didn't think through whether his employer owned his code, but this is when it was actually uh, formulated and launched. Uh, 2005, Dave Neary and I started a group called Floss Foundations, um, but there was a whole lot of new foundations, and one of the conversations that we had frequently at that point in 2005 was, well, should I start a foundation for my project? Um, and in the early days, it was, how do I start a foundation? And then it gradually sort of shifted to, you probably don't need to start a foundation unless you have these particular criteria. You might want to consider finding an umbrella organization. 2006 is when Python Software Foundation got its 501c3 status. And 2006 is also when we launched, uh, when Richard Fontana, among other people, launched the GPL3 review process. This was really revolutionary in free software law because it's the first time a massive scale review process for a license was run. I mean, in the artistic license too, we did a review process. You know, we got, we, we passed it around on email lists. Uh, we brought together maybe 
10 or 20 people who were interested in the project, but GPL3 was like 300 people. It was an in, the, the launch room was just absolutely enormous. Um, and they ran it through a series of, of structured committees to review the license before it went out the door. 2006 is also the year uh, the Jacobson v. Katzer case started. Uh, I don't know if you, well, most people probably have at least heard of it. Um, it was a small uh, railroad software. It was a small guy, like, working on his own, developing railroad software. He released it under the artistic license, and uh, someone borrowed some of the code, which is fine under the terms of the license, but then stripped out the copyright uh, attribution and basically violated the terms of the license, and then turned around and sued the guy that they took the code from for patent infringement. It was, yeah, frightening. Um, so also 2000, so 2007, GPL3 was released. So on the Jacobson-Katzer case, in 2007, there was a ruling that because this code, I won't, I won't describe it in the proper legal terms, you can go back and find it, but that the violation of the artistic license was not copyright infringement and therefore could not be pursued as copyright infringement, which is frightening for free software licenses because we are, all of them are based on the concept that violating the terms of a license is copyright infringement. If it's not copyright infringement, then you're left with some very vague breach of contract and you really don't have the same teeth to it. Um, so a large number of us got together and filed uh, a brief saying um, this is really not appropriate and uh, the next year that came back uh, the the original ruling was vacated and they came back with a um, a statement that the artistic license is enforceable copyright conditions and that actually sets a precedent for all the the copyright licenses which is all the free software licenses On to the current decade. Uh, SCO versus Novell was finally resolved that SCO, uh, Novell owned the copyright, SCO did not, and the case was closed. Jacobson v. Katzer was settled um, in favor of the guy who had been developing his own little model railroad software. Um, the Harmony project was interesting in sort of a it was a sort of a microcosm of what the GPL drafting process had been, but it was about contributor agreements. Um, there hadn't really been, you know, as late as we are in, in free software law, licenses have gotten a lot of attention, but the idea of where the code comes from hasn't got as much attention. There was a lot of controversy around, around Project Harmony, um, and actually I respect the views on both sides. Uh, some of the rhetoric got a little over the top, and I'd probably say if I, if I had an antidote for male ego, I would have dumped a major bucket of it on all five or 12 or 15 sides of the discussion. But um, it is important for us to start thinking about these issues as well as licensing issues. 2011, uh, there was a bit of controversy around uh, CouchDB and Apache. CouchDB is an Apache project. Uh, they wanted to switch to Git, and the Apache project does not have Git as part of its allowed set of tools. Um, so this sparked off a bit of discussion around, do we actually need foundations at all? Um, some of it was a little over the top, but 
there is a key point there, and that is the idea that, um, you know, so over time we have developed foundations into bigger and bigger and bigger parts of free software. Do you really need them? Um, so this is one post, Apache Considered Harmful. It is my belief that we are in the middle of a very large evolution in the ecology of open source. I'm skipping down a bit. People and their contributions are as transparent as we can imagine, and the direct connection of these people to each other turns social problems to, uh, back into social problems rather than political problems. In some sense, we're going right back to 1976, where you say, Wait a minute. No, it's just all code. We're all sharing code. We're all together. We don't have to think about all this, all these more complicated ideas. And that's true. And yet, there are reasons that we've developed these legal structures. So a few months later, uh, the founders of CouchDB forked the project. Um, so it is still an Apache project, but they've created their own version uh, of VC-funded company. Uh, called Couchbase. In some ways, we're kind of like recycling back to the beginning from, from proprietary companies to free software back to proprietary companies again. Um, 2011, the Harmony Contributor Agreements were released. Uh, 2012, we see the Mozilla Public License 2.0. We're still moving forward. So, what strikes me about the past, about this most recent few years probably, is we're now on that last phase uh, where people are forgetting. People are forgetting where we came from and they're forgetting what's, Im what's important about what we have now. And if we don't remember why we got where we are now, we're just going to repeat it all over again. So I only have three things that I want every project to think about. And for the license, it is that this is not just a legal document you're adopting. Uh, you're adopting a whole philosophy, a whole culture. You're adopting a business model. You know, if you adopt a, a, a permissive license, make sure you go out and talk to some projects who understand how to have a healthy relationship with proprietary forks. It's part of a permissive license, and if you're going to embrace it, embrace it, do it right. Um, if you are going to adopt a copyleft license, understand the restrictions and don't be shocked when later someone down the road embeds your software and you have to deal with the fact that they may have violated the terms of the GPL. More and more, we need to start thinking about provenance. We need to start thinking about where the code comes from and where it goes to. Um, there are lots of different ways to do that. Uh, it doesn't matter which one you choose. You can start with something as simple as just tracking your commits. Um, the, the kernel Linux kernel has a system where they actually have each person who makes a contribution add a signed off by line. So you know all the way back, not even long before it gets committed, all the way back when someone was working on the code in their own little branch, you know where that code came from. It's a beautiful system, very elegant, very simple. Um, there's other options you can add on to that. Uh, certificate of origin is like a little more detail onto that. Uh, contributor license agreements are something that you actually sign. Um, and I think, um, actually, Michael Meeks is going to talk a little bit more about that after this. Um, the main point here is just having the information if you need it. And you may never need it, and that's okay. 
and that foundations are completely optional. You know, all the way from the beginning of free software, we had projects running for years before they had a foundation. You don't need them. If you do decide to set one up, it's going to take someone's time for a full year. Now, that may be spaced out over five years, but there is enough legal stuff involved in setting it up that is going to absorb someone's time, and you may want to think about whether you want that to be one of your core developers or not, because they're not going to be working on much of anything else. Um, but you're also just fine. There's a lot of conservancies out there, that is, foundations that will accept multiple free software projects, and they handle the legal infrastructure. You don't have to think about it. And you're fine with no entity at all. Uh, Samba went for years as, a, as just a group of people contributing code. They each owned their own copyright. They didn't need a legal entity behind them. Um, there are some benefits to having a foundation as a, like a liability barrier between the developers and the users. Um, sometimes it can help a little bit with IP management. Uh, it can help with funding, uh, routing funds to, uh, to various different projects, but it's not, it's not essential. So this is my, my thought that I'd like people to carry away. It is very unlikely that your project will ever be a Jacobson Katzer or a, you know, in any sense, the target of attention. Uh, for a legal, a legal case or a legal action. But if it is, you have the chance to set an example for all the projects that follow. You have this, uh, the chance to be the project that makes a positive precedent for free software into the future. So if you do a little preparation and a little groundwork beforehand, um, you'll be in a good position. What you don't want to be is the project that did no preparation and made things more difficult for other people uh, just because you didn't prepare. I hope you enjoyed Allison's talk. In the next segment, Karen and I are discussing the talk. I wanted to warn everyone that after we recorded, Karen and I discovered that something was going on with my laptop and there are a lot, were a lot of buffer overruns during the recording. So you'll hear a couple of uh, jump, basically jump cuts, uh, from uh, throughout, but there's maybe eight or nine of them, uh, in the next segment. So I hope it won't frustrate people too much. It's not too bad. I, I listened to it. It's, uh, it's, it's livable. Uh, and Karen and I didn't have a chance to re-record, so I hope it's okay for everybody, and uh, we'll make sure that that doesn't happen in the future. So we just listened to that talk. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, I, I really liked the... Um, I really like the like journeying through the history of free software. Well, I I I did as well. I actually think that, that the example she starts with about the Gosling thing. I I don't know if Fontana was in the room during her talk or not. I, he may have had to go to another talk. I think he was because I think he mentioned it to me later. But he's obsessed with with that whole story. Oh, of is the, he? Of the Gosling code and so forth. I had read that on uh, Usenet archives a long time ago, back when when. I'm, I didn't read it live when it was happening, but I remember in the '90s at some point reading reading that conversation from Usenet. Um, 
and I think Allison's correct in, in sort of saying that one of the, 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 I think she's correct to link it to a formation issue of the Free Software Foundation, that, mm. that this idea that you needed to protect and be sure that the, the legal certainty of free software was, was good, uh, was in some sense inspired because RMS came from a software sharing community where getting code from somebody and putting it in and getting a, just a friend telling, oh yeah, the code's fine, put it in, was completely reasonable. And you know, that couldn't be reasonable anymore for various reasons, but it was a reasonable attitude for a community to have at one point. I haven't seen the email. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's published somewhere, the email that he, that Stallman received giving permission, but relying on an email um, for permissions to do things is not so outrageous. It's not as terrifying as I think the implications were. Well, I think he was right about was that the email was from a third party saying that he had right, checked right, right, with right, right. Gosling and gotten permission. Right. Oh, right. Like it was third. It was a uh, third hand by the yeah. time it got to RMS. So, but he ripped the code out, and that's I actually I, I remember reading the posts of like I have officially removed all Gosling code from our Emacs. You know, the, right, the final post right. where he had done that. So I, I think. I think he, I think, I think RMS did learn a lesson from that. I've never talked to RMS about it, but I, and he might not remember, but he, I think it showed him that there needed to be something to keep the legal certainty correct of, of free software. It's, I think it does set the tone for the early FSEF policies. And it's the reason FSEF was actually, I admitted this, being executive director of FSEF at the time, it's kind of smug that we were not really susceptible to the SCO attacks because we had such well-known provenance. Now I've changed my views on the obsession with provenance of code since then. Right. Uh, and I'm not as obsessed with it as say the Eclipse Foundation, for example, with mm -hmm. their, their giant poster and, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes of what, what every developer needs to have on their wall to know how to accept a patch. It's only two pages of poster with defined terms. There's little people drinking. I was going to say they're funny little uh, people like Yeah. And if you get to the bottom of the thing, you get to drink alcohol. Uh, at least that's what the stick figures do in there. Well, it's not clear that it's alcohol. It could be well, it's some bubbling other, like alcohol. it could be some other, it could be sparkling, um, non-alcoholic cider for all you know. I, I think the implication was clear, but, um, but anyway, so this, this, I think that level of providence is, is overly obsessive and just well overboard. But I think the fact that we need some level of attention to it, I think is correct. And I think Allison's correct in, in that part. Yeah. And I think she's right in terms of like, you know, settling on your expectations mm -hmm. um, and making sure they're well documented is very important. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I was, so I like history too. And I think, some of her, some of her facts were wrong, which is well. I would say that um, that we're coming up on uh, GNOME's 15 year anniversary, so her date on the um, the beginning of GNOME wasn't quite right. And and again, this may be a victim of the format, but I think the thing about GNOME that she didn't mention was was GNOME was actually formed as a as an answer to a really problematic legal issue with licensing. It, the KDE people don't remember this, but the whole GNOME KDE fight it it, it started for for a very very central problematic issue it was not only the QT was proprietary uh, and KDE was based on it. KDE didn't have an exception for linking with QT. So it was GPL'd and you really didn't kind of have permission to distribute derivative works, <laughs> right. which KDE was of QT. So it was like completely legally in a bad state as far as licensing went uh, until QT got relicensed. So, and that took years and years and years. So, uh, so GNOME was an answer to that to be a clean implementation from the ground up. Of free software under GPL right. and LGPL that would that would be that and it, it did start right. that year. Right, I think that was a level level of detail that she definitely wasn't going to get into in this talk. Well, though it would have fit her talk pretty well. 
I think. Yeah, well, I mean, that's she didn't true. Have time that's again. true. And that's it, true, right? That's, that's, that's right. That's right. Those are that's the lessons learned from. You know, and particularly legal lessons learned, you know, right. that, that you need. I think that's to go. that's true. She uh, she also I I couldn't find any documentation that Linux was ever GPLv one, um, and I did f- go back to the historic archives of Linux and check, and it, and and I could only find v two versions. Now there were some of them I couldn't download because I don't have a copy of Compress anymore, which I, I guess it's not in distributions anymore. But I couldn't open some of the older Linux archives to check every last one. I didn't have I had about twenty minutes, ten minutes to do this really, and so I I didn't find it. But I think the first version was GPLv2 because it was GPL finally by Linus after V2 had come out. So I think it's tough and I don't want to sound too critical of Allison's talk because I really did enjoy it. Um, but I think it's tough because it seems like in some ways she wants it both ways. You know, like she's, she's saying we need to learn from our past lessons and we need to establish good procedures. But she's also saying, well, there's no one right, no one right way to do it. And this disparate, the different, disparate methods that we've settled on over time have been perfectly adequate, while at the same time acknowledging that many of them haven't been tested. Hey, she drank the Kool-Aid of the pro community well. That's the, the more than one way to do it. That's the, uh, the pro yeah. motto. So I, I think that that's, that's a, a cultural uh, situation. Well, but it's interesting that. also in light of Harmony, where, you know, Harmony was sort of saying, trying to solve the problem of how do we have a one-stop shop for some of these problems. She didn't mention Harmony once during she the did. talk. She uh, mentioned... Oh, she did? Okay. She did. Oh, I, I thought I thought I didn't. Now I'm the best kind of correct. <laughs> Oh yeah, okay. So you did mention it once. Okay. And she, you know, when talking. And she mentioned conservancy, which was good. Um, she didn't mention conservancy in the timeline of when. That's true. When it started, but she she said that conservancy was a good option, or to have no entity, which it's, was sort of like. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, no, she 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 did. She said that um, she talked about samba being perfectly um, adequate without a legal structure for so long, but they didn't mention then that samba the was one of the first projects to join conservancy right, and, and they wanted a very specific aspect which is sort of put in conservancy's dna because they wanted legal protection for developers right, they wanted to be were, a part of an entity right and they right. wanted and they wanted the entity to extend legal protection to them uh liability protection for the, the volunteer developers right well what i mean by that is I mean, that's exactly what i'm saying is that yeah. be a part of it because any basically any any nonprofit that has the the free software project as a part of them as opposed to merely an affiliate has the same level of protection. Right, right. As the There's no itself. special, like, extra... Right, it's just the same protection the org has anyway. Yeah, exactly. I just want to clear that up, because I think a lot I of know. people are really confused about that, and well, I think people, it's misleading. Yeah. I think people... Because people actually ask me at GNOME, how do we get GNOME the same kinds of magic legal protection that Conservancy has? And it's so funny, I'm like, well... Because <laughs> you designed it, I know. You know, I don't... I, I, I think it has it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to it's, the extent it's, that it's work done within a nonprofit on the nonprofit's behalf. Yeah, and, that, and I say that very clearly to everybody. I haven't given any misconceptions, but I agree with you that there are misconceptions out there because people see liability protection. Um, and in fact, I rewrote, okay, this is, this is a history between us. I rewrote the initial website you wrote for Conservancy because it highlighted that so much that I felt like it's over highlighting it. And it was, that's then, what drew but attention. But then later I asked you to rewrite it to, to tone it down a little bit further. I know, but it was all, it was all from way <laughs> well, back when it was, know, you did the initial version that was way, it was, all, it was like. No, it wasn't way over. Okay, it said, it used to say, 
Conservancy offers many benefits to free software project. Most importantly, liability protection for but developers. But I did say to the extent that they are working within the nonprofit. True enough. It yeah, still says it's that. just, it's, just like it's only because it was so misinterpreted so many times that it, we realized we really needed to change that. I agree. I agree, and that's why we because changed the it. all the all the the projects that were joining in on Conservancy were all projects that you know. There were so many projects that were unaffiliated and had no home. Yeah. That, that was more of a need it, then than it is now. It, well, right. Well, it's that and also because of of the specific risks that Samba and Wine faced in, in those yes. particular days, which they right. don't face as much. They, right. uh, Wine probably does because Microsoft still doesn't like Wine, but Microsoft actually kind of likes Samba now, which is funny. <laughs> um, so, so it's not like they uh, want people to use Samba, actually, a lot of time Microsoft does. Um, mainly because anyone who used the most recent version. Um, I think um, Chris Herstel talked about this on the discussion he did, the interview he did on Linux Outlaws with Fab, um, because basically Microsoft wants the latest version of Samba in use because if they're, if basically Samba works around any bug of any version of Windows, and if somebody has an old version of Samba that doesn't work around those bugs, they, they blame Microsoft, and Microsoft gets the tech support calls for that. Right. right. <laughs> so they'd rather people use the latest greatest Samba because then it all works. <laughs> Everything works and all the clients work against it. So they're, they're much more than they used to be. Um, so, so there, that, that issue of fear of Microsoft coming after you is, is not as much of a thing for the Samba project, which is great. Uh, I mean, it's shows that things change over time. And what most people want in conservancy now is not Right. That liability protection is really, you know, it's sort of an aside now because also the, you know, we sort of have come to realize that the most risky behavior in terms of attracting lawsuits is going to be done by the companies that are using the software and that's on their own behalf and generating their own profit making activities. The the biggest, the biggest legal risk that legal risk of your project creates is adoption. Right. This is like the FFmpeg problem, which is that nobody wants, a lot of people do adopt FFmpeg, but the extent to which people don't, it's because they're afraid they're going to be in some codec world right. space. It's not like the FFmpeg developers sit there and worry about being sued all the time. Yep. It's that the people that might adopt them and put FFmpeg in a commercial product are afraid of being sued. Yep. And the truth is that if you are working on behalf of a nonprofit, you know, you can still be sued as an individual. It just right. means you'll have to try to work to get out of the suit and you'll have a, a strong argument to say that you're not the, you know, you're not the right party to have been sued. And patent, patent people, patent trolls and stuff, they don't sue individuals. They sue for-profit companies. So it's, it's just, it's, the risk is minimal, I think, for a free software developer who's contributing as a volunteer. But in any event, you know, I, I think there are, it's funny because there were such a diverse set of views on that, in that whole day at Bosdem, mm. which is pretty cool. And earlier in the day, you and I had given a talk that I think we didn't record no, or we weren't going to use. Impromptu. Totally impromptu. But, um, but we sort of focused on the other side of it, which is, you know, why it's important. Yeah. <laughs> why, why you might need a, a, a legal. Well, I, th- I think Allison felt both ways about it that, that some projects need it and some projects don't. And that's, that's a very pearl attitude to take. And, that's, and that's probably true. I think we need more. I mean, I've been saying this for a while that I think we need, we need organizations that look after some of those initial matters, like what to do about registering trademarks early or agreements about names and things we need you know i don't know if it needs to be a legal structure or sort of a, a principled agreement among parties that's written but you know for any for for whatever it takes there is a need initially to sometimes to take care of well, legal matters and after that sort of there's a period where you probably don't need any Yeah, but I also think Allison was right when she said that there needs to be some organization, some entity that's the face of the project. Well, she didn't say that. She did say that. I wrote down a quote. She said, 
Um, people realized they, quote, needed a legal entity to be the face of the project. She unquote. said that, that some projects found that to be the case. Okay. She wasn't saying that all projects. True enough. She, she was she explaining what those projects were finding. But, and it, that's famously, it was famously said about the Apache Software Foundation. Right. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, you know, I, 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 and I think that's what she was referring to. Not, Probably. Yeah. She wasn't saying that all free software projects need a legal face. I think I think most of them end up needing that because I well, that would a, be contradictory to a lot of the other things she said. I agree with you, yeah, I, I but I think many her, do need it ultimately. I just think I think know. basically everybody kind of does in the end if if they want to if they want to do to, to do anything in the world in some sense because you end up having to either rely on the individual developer to do it, individual developers to do it, and we've seen so many problems you and I have of projects where developers move on and then the domain names or whatever are stuck with that developer. It's mostly these trademark things like domain names that become more of there's the that. Well, there's money too. There's been so many. I mean, it's public, very public money fights of yeah. money that was in bank accounts. That's happened with a number of projects. Yeah, that's true. And having a project, having a place that holds, that's one of the biggest things we do when a project comes in conservancy is figure out what the committee is and how it works and how c conservancy can always recognize the right committee because we know that if there's ever a fork, it's going to be a fight over the money. Yep. Like, oh, we've got this much money with Conservancy. Okay, it's ours now. We forked. Yep. And we needed, will the real Project Foo please stand up? We have to be able to say that and, and get the right answer. Yeah. Or get an answer that and clearly is outlined and everybody knew it going in. Yeah. Um, and, yep. I, and I think and that's why you need a front. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, that's what sort of we So I got an email out of the blue today from somebody who had okay. read one of our project's websites and wanted to donate $10,000 to the project. Seriously? Right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And maybe awesome. it'll happen. Maybe it won't. They, they, they did this thing where, like, give me an invoice and we'll try to get our finance department to pay it. So oh, um, oh, I see. It's one of those, right? So we may or may not come in. But the thing is, they needed a front door to write to. They needed me to write to to say, I want to give $10,000 to this project. How do I do it? And um, can you generate me an invoice so I can show it to my finance? finance people and, and try to convince them that they ought to donate to this project. That's cool. Right. But that's the thing is that if I weren't there to answer that email, there wouldn't, if, if an org wasn't there to answer, like a developer can't answer that email and say, um, a developer is going to generate no, a No, I agree with that. But what I think what Allison is saying is that it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, a strongly affiliated legal entity that the project is a part of every time. Like it's possible that there could be organizations more like software in the public interest or other kinds of organizations where projects are loosely affiliated and then they could take that money in. Um, you know, that, that it's unclear. It's true, but the thing is, I don't get me, I'm doing I'm, 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 I'm a huge many, advocate for right. fiscal sponsors in this space. But there's not much different for, from the high level. There's not much, there's differences in the details, tons of them. But from the high level, there's not much difference between SPI and conservancy in the sense that we're there, nonprofits, 513C3s in the U.S., ready to be a home for lots of projects. And that's all in I don't common. think that SPI is willing to be a home for Maybe not projects. a home, you're right. But it's willing so to be I don't think I I think that yeah, that the service I think that what what that organization does is 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 pretty different than what Conservancy does. But you're looking at it at, at a level of detail most people don't look at. No, I mean, but I think they should. <laughs> well, yeah, I think they should. And in fact, a lot of my intake at Conservancy uh, for new projects, <laughs> I mean, I do a lot of, do you really need Spy or Apache? Like, I answer a lot of emails with that question. Yeah. Because the the SPI or Apache is sometimes and often a better fit for some of the projects we do intake on in Conservancy, and I tell them so. Um, but the thing is, is they know they need something. And that's the first step that I'm glad projects take. And that's where I think I disagree with Allison is I think most projects, maybe even a majority of projects, either reach a level where they realize they need something. 
Right. Uh, so that's, um, yeah, actually the only other thing I want to comment about Allison's talk was um, I wanted to make my guesses at the company that approached her. And I think it might have been harder because it might have been, it might have been active state, but it was probably Microsoft acting in conjunction with active state that huh. wanted her to rewrite Pearl. I was wondering about that. I think it was probably she probably meant Microsoft because she said if you guessed in the first guess you'd be yeah, right. Yeah, I was wondering if that's. But I bet you Active State was involved. Active State was like Active State was like the seedy company in those days. I don't know what it's like now, but it used to go around like like basically they tried to hire me when I was in grad school, and um, to to work on something, and then I I used to have like things on my website that they had read, and apparently they didn't like them, and they were like, well, we were going to hire you, and we thought about it, but then we thought, which they were basically trying to use to negotiate down and how much they were going to pay me, oh, which was weird, and like I hadn't even said weird. I would take the job, and I I, I started started making demands because it's me, and I was like, well, because I was working on Pearl JVM, and it's this not was, just you, it was you then. Yeah, I was, I'm sorry, it was worse, is what you're saying? Yeah. yeah, probably true. But, I mean, I'm always going to make demands for free software that comes up, and I'm sorry, saying, why well, I wanted to be licensed this way, and I wanted all the code to go back to the community and be released, and all this, all the stuff I start saying. And because it was Pearl J, it was when I was working on Pearl JVM. And so they were actually trying to work on porting Pearl to .NET, and a lot of the stuff I was doing in grad school would have helped with that. And eventually they went off and did it another way, which is right. fine. Fine with me, because I wasn't involved. Um, of course, they made it proprietary, I think. But whatever. So I was like... You weren't going to change that. Right. But the funny thing was, is I had this... Uh, Dick Hart, who used to be the the, the CEO of... Um, of, uh, of, uh, of Active State. I'm having this conversation with him and he's, he's like, well, it's at OSCON, right? We're at the party, you know, the annual party at OSCON. Uh -huh. We're at that party and we're getting louder and louder in our conversation. And Dick Hart says to me, he says, well, you're releasing everything under the Pearls license, which means I can take the artistic and do whatever I want with your code and I'm going to proprietize it all. And I said, you just convinced me to make everything GPL! Like, screamed at him. <laughs> um, and, and, and everybody turned around and like looked at us and it was it was embarrassing, but... It was the kind of thing that would happen yeah. in those days. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so um, in the end, I actually released it all under the Pearl license, but none of it actually kind of works. So, I mean, it's it's pretty much a toy uh, project anyway, because I didn't. Because when you do a master's, you don't have to actually finish your work. You just have to show that it could be finished and you're done. Oh, did you see that um, that uh, Scientific American article about, uh, about free and open source software being... No. Uh, that uh, basically this article said that um, universities and academics who release papers and don't release their source codes, as they said, um, have, you know, don't have any academic integrity. And that in order for the studies to be, you know, I, I haven't read. The oh, yeah. Yet. Okay. Somebody this saying I got a blog about this. Yeah. 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 Do this. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I said that. That's why I was going to I was going to say we should do a whole episode on it. And, you know, and I'm writing a, a blog post about it because I think that's great because that's something that you've been saying for a while. It's something that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's great to see that being so widely published just to the scientific community. Forget about the free software community. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I wonder why we say source code and not codes. I wonder why, why etymologically, why did that happen? I don't like, know. Because codes is not but wrong. Why did they say source article? That I don't know. But I, what I'm asking is the question is why is it why is it not correct usage? Like like because it there, there's more than one code. Yeah. It's like. Why do we call but, it? But we call why do we always use it in the singular? But it's the same in um, in legal speak, right? Like when we talk about the code. Yeah, that's true. We talk. We don't talk about. But no, but I've heard well regs. But you say regulations. We say regulations, but that's different. I know, but the point when we is, use is the that, term code. It's always just. I know, but singular. then why do you pluralize reg? Usually because uh, regulations are published separately and they don't make up one complete body. 
I don't know. I'm just but making that up. But the other is the code. Well, the code tends to be the statute. Yeah, but there's and multiple the statutes. Like there's the, the state statute and the federal. The regulations tend to be promulgated to clarify the statute. I guess. In any event, um, what I also thought was cool about this talk was hearing about the, you know, sort of thinking again about the history of free software was that, you know, I still feel like I'm sort of a newcomer, but it's funny and I forget how new all of this relative, like we're not talking about, you know, that many years for most of this relevant history. And thinking about sort of when I came in, you know, along the timeline, and it's sort of cool to me because, I mean, you've been involved in much longer, well, but that wasn't that many years before. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I got involved. I mean, I downloaded my first. Actually, I reminded Ted Cho of this recently because um, Ted Cho and I have have, have our, our periods where we, we have little squabbles. And But I reminded him that I downloaded my first copy of Linux from his desk. Because, oh, did you? Well, yes, because the only FTP site in huh. the U.S. for Linux in E2 was Ted's desktop machine at MIT. Oh, I wonder if that's where I downloaded it, too. Could be. What did you when download? When I was in Linux? college. Oh, it wasn't 92, actually. No, it was later. It was 90. It was 93 or 94. I don't know what was happening by then, but I know the. Fr- yeah. I know I FTP so to Tyso dot whatever dot MIT dot edu to get my first copy. So, um, anyway, so that so I reminded Ted of that. But the thing is, is that I, I, so I recently met Roland McGrath in person for the first time in my life, which was like kind of amazing. I was sitting there with Fontana, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to meet Roland, Roland McGrath in person, because when I got to the FSF, Roland McGrath was like this historical figure. Because he started working for the FSF when he was 16 years old, working on glibc, and like he, like when I, like we're almost the same age. Like he's only like three years older than me, four years older than me. And so when I was playing with a Commodore 64, he was writing glibc. Like I feel like really dumb. And he told um, me this. And so and so I met him and I told him that and he said he said I wish I had a Commodore 64. So funny. So I didn't, I didn't write glibc. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which I thought was really funny. I'm sorry, I didn't. I, I was laughing so hard I didn't say that clearly. He, he told me that he wished he'd had a Commodore 64 in the late 80s so he didn't have to write glibc when he was 16. Um, which I've always been jealous of him that he got to write glibc when he was 16 and that he That's had funny. the ability, which I did not have either. Uh-huh. Um, he's a glibc maintainer again, which is kind of cool. That is cool. Um, and he's been he's been a contributor to Linux uh, for a number of years now as well. And, uh, and so he's he's been. I mean, he wrote most of the early versions of Make. Uh, he's he was basically folklore by the time That's I got really to cool. FSF. Um, of course, he had been there and gone and moved on to work in other places. He works at Google now, I believe. Um, and But he was he was, he was was sort of a, a, a historical mythical figure of like a Johnny Appleseed or something of FSF <laughs> when I showed up. And I finally got to meet him in person at, at the Collaboration Summit. So I was pretty excited about that. But th- I mean, that's to me, that's the history that was going on that I wasn't part of because that was 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. I'm still full of my Commodore 64. I don't get a PC until 90. Right. Don't install GNU slash Linux until 92. So and yep. that's late to me. Because I feel like I missed the the early period, the the late eighties. Yeah, well, it's just funny, right? Like because we're in ordinary worlds, we're not so old. Uh, but uh, but yeah. I'm old. I'm almost forty. Well, you're a lot older than me, so I understand why you feel that way. A lot? Am I a lot older than you're you? You're a lot older than me. Okay, I'll go with that. Um. Anyway, so about. This talk, the only last thing I wanted to say is that, um, to just to fill in the, the information here, because, uh, Allison does talk about Jacobson, but she doesn't mention MDY. And I just think you can't really mention one without the other. Um, and MDY sort of cuts sort of in the other direction. 
So is it in a different circuit or a same yes. circuit? Okay. So you know that's that's the thing. Don't so. you all call this? Don't you all lawyer types call this a, then their circuit split? With that accent only. <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> so I mean, it's just and, and maybe it's worth talking about that another day. But, uh, but okay. I just wanted to fill that in since we are sort of a show about legal issues. Yeah, that's sort true. Of. Policy, legal, anything. Yeah. I, I like to mix them. I've been saying that a lot lately, the policy and legal, because I think it's not just legal issues that come up. They're, they're policy issues that some people treat as legal issues. Like, it's not just a legal issue, which I think she referenced this thing about this legal ball that the lawyers told us to put in the GPL or whatever. But the GPL is a policy document as much as a legal document. And I think that's been conflated a lot. It's one of the reasons I say legal and policy these I days. assume that by legal bull, she meant a lot of warranty stuff. Well, no, no, no. She was quoting the GNU manifesto. I'm not the GNU manifesto. The GNU bulletin, GNU's bulletin, which said, we've just released a GPL, which has longer, you will see it has legal ball our lawyers. Right, right, like right. Like legal foo is sort of what they're saying. Right. Um, but I don't think they meant warranty. I think they just meant that it, the GPL was longer, which Fontana, so I think Fontana should go read all those GNU's bulletins and try and figure out, like, well, there was reasons this all happened. He's just trying to like, oh, we're, he's like, Fontana has to get this attitude of like, I'm going to re-implement everything. He's like, he's like the guy who comes in and is like, this operating system's horrible. I'm going to re-implement all the entire operating system from scratch. But he's actually come at it a few different ways now. Remember we had him on when he talked about his like, um, what did he call it? His, uh, basically the standard of, uh, like the merchant standard in free software. Next market's high, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which he sort of. I just had another conversation with him about that a couple of days ago. Um, actually, we're going to have Fontana's talk. I think that's probably going to be the last talk we do uh, cool. um, uh, from our FOSDEM archives. But we actually have a recording from him from Linux Collaboration Summit. And I told Fontana that I let him listen to both and he can pick the one that he prefers because they're very, very similar talks. So uh, it's going to be one of those, but it's going to be roughly the same talk uh, either way. Uh, and people we'll who give the same talks. Actually, I've given too. given my medical devices talk a few times now. Yeah, yeah, I have to but, reuse but talks. But I've, I've never given a talk in its entirety. The medical devices, one I gave it first... Once 15 minutes, once 45 minutes, and uh, once an hour, and that's You've it. You've got, if you do a lot of speaking at conferences, you have to reuse I talks. do a lot of speaking at conferences, but yeah. I I don't to reuse keynotes. That's the only thing I don't do. I don't do the same keynote in two different places, but sometimes I'll take a keynote and then make it a talk for a while. Oh, and speaking of which, I was supposed to mention, I said like four episodes ago that I hadn't keynoted in a very long time or something, or like years. And Lord Drakenbloch, who organizes Indiana Lynx Fest and had me kindly, he let me keynote the very first inaugural Indiana Lynx Fest. Uh, he reminded me that I was not including that when I said that, and I felt really bad, and I was like supposed to clarify that three episodes ago, and I just remembered it, and I'm sorry about that. But I thank Indiana Linux Fest, which is coming up, and maybe going on, I think, the week that this comes out, so you should go to that if yeah, it hasn't happened super yet. Yeah, cool. I don't know the dates, now. I feel bad because I didn't check the dates. But anyway, so you should go to that if you're going. I'm actually going to be in Indiana for the Evergreen Conference uh, just either right before or right after Indiana Linux Fest. Um Actually, maybe you know Fest is this very weekend that we're about to go into, which means you're, because you're hearing this in the future. Um, Karen is dutifully looking up on DuckDuckGo the Fest dates, so we will give it to you. This is making okay. great radio. I think we missed it. We missed it. Indiana Fest was a great event that just happened last <laughs> weekend, and I hope people enjoyed it. Um, as it turns out, it just finished, and I hope it was awesome this year because it was good last year. I bet when it I was went. good. And uh, I'm coming to the Evergreen Conference this week. If you're a librarian and/or a developer of librarian software, you should come see me at Evergreen Conference and the Boost Conference, which is now C++ Now, the 
conference on C++ and open source. And while we're plugging conferences, if you yeah. haven't gotten your... I think the, the Guadalajara call for papers is still... It's, oh, it's, I thought it closed. Oh, it didn't mean it did close. I think it did close. But the Gnome Asia um, call for papers is still open. So you get your plane you tickets to Acuna if you're going to Guadalajara because it's really hard to get there. <laughs> so I care doesn't like when I say that. So, but yeah, so there's conferences coming up and other stuff too. Um, if you miss the Selenium conference was just last week. I hope people enjoyed it if they were in the UK. Um, and I'm trying to figure out a way to go to OddCamp, but I don't, uh, I, we're going to have to raise money for that if you want me to go to OddCamp. I think I would like to go, but I don't know how to. I enjoyed it last year. It was a great conference. Well, you were there anyway, so that made it cheap. <laughs> To go there. Which... Oh, you're right. The deadline has passed for the Guadalajara yeah. papers. So anyway, so we're rambling now. So we're gonna go on to uh, leave and end the show. All right. Bye. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's f a i f.us. dot